0: Hello Imperfect listeners, it's your host Luke West, back with another episode where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. This week's guest is Tom Smoot, and we talk to him about what it's like to come home from the army with PTSD, the effects it can have on those around him, including his family, how he copes with PTSD, the power power of exposure therapy, and much, much more. After more than a decade in the Army Special Operations community under civil affairs and psychological operations, Tom moved on with a PTSD diagnosis. Now, as an engineer and entrepreneur, he uses that military background to craft stories and insight into his work. When he's not running marathons or building things, as we talk about in this episode, uh, Tom can usually be found spending his time at the Lift and Shift Foundation, which he founded and advocates for veteran inclusion in science and technology through programs that educate and build confidence, or as he likes to say, reduce a veteran's barriers to entry. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to press subscribe, follow, leave a review, and message me on Instagram at The Imperfect Pod, or email me at luke at lukeattheimperfectpod.com, or join my Facebook group. All these things are linked in the description below. I always like to hear from my listeners uh, and continue to do that. Now we'll get into the show. Hello, imperfect listeners. I am with my guest Tom Smoot, also known as Smooty, uh, from his days in the army, and that's what thing one thing we're going to talk about in this episode is his journey in the army, but how he has responded and to his PTSD from the army. Uh, you know, thank you for your service, Tom. For one, always want to say that uh, to any army veteran, but you know, obviously the army has its um, responses and uh, side effects in a lot of ways. So that's one thing I really want to cover with you. And thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Yeah. Happy to talk about all of it.
0: Yeah. So the first question I always ask my guest, Tom, is who is one person dead or alive that you'd like to have over for dinner and what would you cook for them?
1: Oh, uh, my gosh. Uh, This answer would probably be different every day of the week. Uh, I'm just so busy and so into so many different things myself, but I think um, today I, I feel like Ben Franklin would be my pick. And I really don't know what I'd cook him. I'd probably just take him out for like a beer and some wings or something
0: classic you know i think that's that's a good way to go too what would you talk about with him specifically
1: oh my gosh there's so much to talk about the guy with i mean he 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 was he's one of those people who was also into anything and everything he he, uh you know i i I don't know what everybody else thinks when they hear that we're ben franklin but i i I, I, it's you know you 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 think i don't know the, the american revolution but um He's also, I mean, he he flew a kite in a storm because he wanted to know what electricity was. <laughs> he he had his own uh, he had his own opinion on on slaves and and uh, people and what should be in you know these documents that founded our our country. And uh, I just think he comes off as a person who what would not be shy about his values and and what makes him have those values like what what what's underlying what, what's his reasons for those things and he, he also I mean he, he seems like out of place with all of the other revolutionary people like George Washington and and uh Hamilton and, and everybody all the other you know people I think there there was a big age difference
0: mm. so
1: I I, I kind of wonder like how he how his day-to-day life was I mean it, he just like drop a pen and paper and parchment and all that stuff because of the you know there was a lightning storm outside and decided he he try this kite thing. I I just it it's like how do you get from one point to another point and another and I think it would be an interesting conversation to have with him and that's why I yeah. I, I think a couple beers and some wings would be perfect.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, and going more into your story about. Um I guess being diagnosed with PTSD and that experience in the army I'm really curious what the challenges were what your life was like when you realized that you had it or acknowledged that you had a problem um and what your process was in reaching out was there any hesitancy there as a man as a as a stigma of of reaching out
1: Oh yeah absolutely um it, this this I probably should have done it a lot earlier in life. Uh, I, I I went on a, f- a few deployments overseas. I spent uh, you know over two years in Iraq to begin with, and um, it was actually a lot of my ex-wife t- telling me that she noticed things and me uh, in in denial. Uh, I I in the army I was you know this big angry you know, obnoxious staff sergeant, and uh, it, it didn't fit the persona to ask for help. We were, we were, this was um, post 9-11. We were busy in 2003 and 2004 and 2006 and 2008. Uh, it, it, we were, you know, going everywhere and doing everything. Um, and it, it, the, the mindset for so many of us was, you know, suck it up, you'll deal with it later. Um or there isn't a problem. You just need time to relax. And, um, you know, I, I was, I was the biggest, uh, uh, guilty party when it, when it came to th- that mindset, uh, PTSD is an anxiety disorder. And, and so are, there's a handful of other anxiety dis- disorders like uh, OCD, for example. And, uh, I, I clung to that with a, with a, you know, a, like, a better badge of honor. Like I was more proud of of that. The, the people would accuse me of of being too controlling in my uh, planning if I, if uh, I were planning training or an exercise where we were actually overseas and and you know uh, dealing with bad guys and things. i I would much rather have that label than than you know post-traumatic stress disorder as as a label. and it, it uh, it's something i I think I think it goes on. A lot in in the military still uh i've, I've been out for a few years but I, kn- I know it was it was a big deal uh, you know you, you don't ask for help uh mm-hmm. you don't you don't you you kind of suck it up and, and just do what you need to do and and it's kind of weird because there's this not just the stigma but there i mean in the military if you go to sick call and you're not sick there's there's a a charge for that you can be charged with malingering which is you know basically f- faking an illness to, to get out of work mm-hmm. and and, and it, i mean it, it's kind of built into the culture it, it's it's like if you can't handle it you shouldn't be here to begin with how do you get here what what are you what are you doing
0: mm-hmm. so when you talk about sickness you're talking about like a cold or a flu right oh, and yeah, yeah, that
1: yeah. that's yeah. not like
0: a mental yeah. illness
1: Yeah. All of the, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't remember the actual, you know, um, uh, definition of malingering as far as the term, but I, I, you know, we've, I've, I was, I was a non-commissioned officer in the army. I had soldiers who wanted to go sick call. Sometimes you have to have that talk with them and say, look, look, what are you doing here, dude? Are are you, are you just trying to get out of this field exercise we're doing or what?
0: And, and I'm curious how, it manifested itself in the first place. You know, was it, how many deployments did it take for you to realize that you had PTSD or acknowledge it? Was it a collection of moments or experiences? How can PTSD be formed and, or how was it formed with you?
1: Wow. Um, first I, 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 did not acknowledge it at all. I, I, all of the signs and symptoms were there and, and, I fought so hard, tooth to and nail, against my ex-wife, family, everyone who, who said that something was different, and, and me saying, "Yeah, but it's supposed to be that way. It'll it'll go away. Um, you know, there, there's this readjustment period. I think is is what they call it. Um, back, uh, you know, we were the, the the first people to go to Iraq in 2003, so we were the first people to come home, and they didn't really have this this program set up for us. So when, when we got home they they kind of just told us, hey, um you might have some nightmares, you might feel uncomfortable. You just need to readjust. You've you've been living in a combat zone where people wanted you dead for a year. Uh, it, it, it'll take some time, but it, it will go away. But um you know I mean that, that was it. That was that was like the chat. After that I packed my bags up. I went home to my family. Um but I did. I did. I struggled. Um, I had. I had nightmares. I would wake up in cold sweats. I would wake up screaming, and and my my whole family was, you know, standing there staring at me. I would have this, um, you know, the, this this nightmare um, of, of me being in Iraq, and and here I, I was was uh, heart racing in my dream, like, like in real life, uh, me yelling back uh, in this uh, combat scenario, and and uh, you know, I, I I would wake up uh with my heart beating uh you know you know she soaked in sweat and just completely stunned and and uh there more than one time my ex-wife was you know just kind of sitting there she didn't want to wake me up she'd heard rumors that it's bad to wake people up in nightmares all kinds of other stuff there were there was no we didn't know how to deal with it but eventually it went okay. away I, I was i was adamant that the actually it was a chaplain who told us it takes 90 days or so for all this stuff to, to kind of get back to normal. So give your family some rest, give, give everybody some space. And uh, I, I think in my case, I, I tried so hard to, um, to kind of normalize it that eventually my, my, my brain uh, went along with the plan and, and started saying, okay, these are, these are happening, but we're just going to ignore them. And it, it's kind of, I stopped remembering dreams altogether. Um, I, I, even now I, I, I very rarely will, will wake up and remember a dream that I've had, even though I know I have them. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's just one of the things that my little, my little pea brain does to, to kind of help me through the, the, the stuff that I didn't want to deal with at the time.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious about that. Cause you said that, um, your, your ex-wife heard rumors that, uh, if you wake someone up in in those nightmares that it could be dangerous. Is that, is that true? Is that something that you learned through therapy? Is there a, a realm of, of truth to that?
1: I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a qualified doctor to, to say it, but, um, the, the idea that, that, uh, you may not remember some things is definitely something we, we, we discussed in my therapy. The, the idea that, uh, you know, my, my, my brain might actually be trying to lock memories away that are too stressful. And, uh, I, I can't, I can't speak to uh, the nightmares and the, the idea that you should be waking people up out of nightmares or sleepwalking or any of those other things. But, but I think there is, um, there is some, um, some good research and some good work by doctors being done about, you know, that, that, uh, as a topic.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cause I always think when it comes to therapy and, and PTSD and, and some of those maybe other, um, Disruptive disorders—I don't want to really call them disruptive—but um, how that affects the family, and does the family get any coaching and help through those systems? Because right, you, you hear a lot of therapy about maybe yourself going through it, but um, is there anything that the wife can do, or the partner, or the family can do to help that coaching along and and um, be there and, and support? So, like, that's where my my head was kind of going with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a an excellent question. And I it took me a very long time to to get to a place where my own therapy started to to include the family. Um, I, I don't I, like I said, they they barely knew what to do with us when we got home. There was no support for family. Uh, there, there was kind of no like a uh, handbook to say here. Here's your your soldiers coming home. Here's what you should expect. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I mean, it's, it's hard for all of us. My ex-wife was in the military herself. So we, we did a lot of uh, uh, exchanging of kids, uh, you know, on weekends when one of us comes home and the other one's disappearing. I think uh, the important part to, to, to stress um, when it comes to family and, and a lot of these issues is that, that families serve too. Uh, It's a saying in in the army at least, and you know, that they, they, develop these uh, family support groups and family readiness committees and things in units. Uh, but uh, it, it's definitely very true that, that entire families serve. I mean, my, my, my kids had to deal with, you know, having single parents basically uh, their entire lives. They, um, you know, I, I think my, my oldest son never went back to the sc- same school in, in a following school year until he got to high school. Uh, every year, every year was just a, a new assignment and a new, uh, you know, elementary school or middle school. Um, you know, th- there's just a lot that comes along with um, the, uh, serving in the military to begin with. And uh, yeah, they, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't get a handbook.
0: Yeah, and and you you mentioned that the handbook in two thousand three, two thousand four, that there wasn't much assistance and support when you came back. Uh, I mean, it's been. 16, 17 years since then, are, are you seeing a lot more support? I know that I think one of the number one causes in America, North America for homelessness is the lack of support that comes from or goes to military veterans. I'm not sure. I know you work with veterans. Is that a, a true statement? Is Are you seeing more support and guidance there now?
1: I think that's, that's. I, I, I want to say yes. There there are some, some people who are doing really good things. And I, I think the the tragedy of all of the veteran suicides to begin with, and all of the veteran homelessness, uh, especially f- for females, um, is starting to come to light. Um, earlier this year, I think there was there was the Fort Hood incident, and that that really brought about a big conversation about military sexual trauma and the fact that uh, girls and and even to an extent some guys uh, experience. Uh, you know, sexual assault in the military, and and I, I I like to think that that that's changing the conversation about how mental health is taken care of uh, for all veterans, not just those that are currently serving. Um, but I, I, I like I said I, I think it's also a a very big challenge because this um, this public health crisis that we've been dealing with through the entire year of 2020 has just um, really changed a lot for a lot of people um, I, I've had these conversations with even my own family about how they they deal with the distance and and the you know <clears throat> the lack of connection and I I've experienced this as a veteran you know I had a corporate job I worked in the nine- to-five in an office and I didn't feel like I fit in uh, when I went back to school I was you know 15 years older than all the kids uh, I, I didn't fit in in a classroom I it was awkward to go to a a, a physics lab and, and, you know, have a lab partner who is 18 years old. And I'm, I'm um, you know, the, the, that, that kind of lack of connection, is it's always there to an extent to veterans. And, and people have learned um, a little bit, but I think there have there have been a lot of reports from both the, the Department of Defense, uh, the, the VA, and uh, really big organizations like the Wounded Warrior Project, who, who have you know, uh, surveyed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of veterans and found that, uh, it, it, this has just compounded that, that feeling of, um, you know, disconnection and uh, mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I think 2020 has been good and bad. Um, it's, it's sad that bad things have to happen before people want to talk about them. And, uh, earlier this year in Fort hood, that, 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 sh- that should never happen, um, I, I've, I've had to deal with it myself you know, you know, having other male peers harass the female soldiers that I work with and me having to, to step in and, you know, say, Hey, knock it off. Mm-hmm. But, um, it, it's, it's, it, it's hard to have those conversations when, when there's no trigger for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like there has to be a, almost a catalyst to that conversation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and whether that's a rampant number of, of veteran suicides because of you know, the, the mental illness or the response and trauma that they have for an army or the sexual assault cases, as you're talking to. Um, so talking about the, how it, it kind of came about, I know that when we first had a conversation, uh, PTSD can either happen through specific moments or through a buildup of moments. Do you, like in your therapy conversations, do you know how it, how it kind of formed for you? Cause I know you were deployed quite a bit. Was it a series or was it one in, in, in particular?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, no. Um, it, it I'm going to say it's a little from column a, it's a little from column B. Um, there were definitely some, some, uh, overwhelming traumatic incidents, uh, uh, some were combat related, some not, but I think the overall idea that, uh, it's kind of like, a. I guess I'll compare it to a river. Um, if you have a river bed, actually I'll, I'll compare it to, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go with the river. If, if you have this river bed and, and it, you know, only fills can carry like, like three feet of water per minute or something like that. And, and, and you, um, you know, you try to stuff like nine feet of water down a minute and it's, it's going to overflow. It just can't keep it. It's, it, it, and, um, over time, you don't realize the stress building, you don't feel the stress building, even though, you know, day in and day out, you're you are driving around in places where, you know, people are just randomly taking shots at you or you have this fear of IEDs and, and ambushes and things, uh, you know, constantly in the background. And and you, you may acknowledge that at first as something stressful, but then it becomes normal after you know, months and months overseas and you don't realize that, 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 that is like the bare minimum stress level for you. So when the rest of life starts happening, you know, um, it, it just compounds the the stress more and more and more. and, And that prolonged stress can, can impact, um, even, even smaller incidents. Um, so maybe, maybe it's not, you know, you being, Blown up or something, maybe maybe something a, a l- little less stressful, but because you are already, you know, at kind of like fifty percent, twenty four seven, it can kind of push it through the roof. Yeah. And for me, um, you know, I've, I've so many other soldiers and and Marines and Sailors and Airmen and everybody else, they they all deal with um, you know family issues. They they. Uh, you 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 have them. Every family has issues, and uh, it, it's it's hard to deal with them overseas. It's hard to deal with uh, health problems. Um, you, you know, if if you have a family member sick at home, all of these things can just really compound um, what you're already dealing with uh, when, when when you do go overseas. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, yeah, for, for for me, it was it was kind of all of the above. Um, the stress of constantly being de- de- deployed uh, took a toll on on my marriage. Um, we have a we have a daughter who uh, was born with a disorder, uh, and that uh, kind of um, you know also added some additional stress to the things I was going through. And uh, yeah, you, you know, and then you happen to be out there on a day when people uh, don't come home, and uh, it, it just kind of doesn't doesn't work um, psychologically. Mm-hmm. You you kind of get to a point where you you, you shut down a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the pain and the, and the, the stress and all the issues, I guess, or the complexities of it all really start to add up as you mentioned. And, and it's, it's so unfortunate to see and uh, like, is therapy or anything like that mandatory in the army? Like, is that a necessary function that everyone that's deployed has to go through or, or no?
1: Yeah, no, it was not mandatory when when I was in the army. I I did go talk to a counselor and, uh, while I was overseas. I, I told them I was I was really stressed out that I I just found out you know my, my daughter's sick, um, my my ex-wife and I are talking about you know a divorce or getting separated, and all of this stuff was happening overseas, and I I, I just I knew it was a problem, and I, I did go talk to um the mental health while I was. Um, in Northern Iraq, uh, I I think in 2006, um, we we had no discussion about PTSD or, or anxiety or anything. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it it was just kind of like a life is happening and it's starting to spiral a bit and I need to do my job. So, uh, I'm just checking in with you guys to make sure it's not going to break me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, um, yeah no I, so I, of course I was it was a touchy subject I didn't really want to bring up that that I'd been deployed before and and, and I, I I had all these nightmares and I had trouble readjusting uh, it was it was strictly focused on my job and the present time and it, it was not mandatory I, I voluntarily did it um, and it, it, it for me it, it was weird because I don't really feel like it was helpful yeah I, I felt the most. Um, most help and support and, and, um, productiveness by actually just diving into my job. And you kind of hear that in regular life, you know, sometimes when you have life problems, it's easier to go, go do something to keep your mind off of it. Um, whether that's work or school, um, yeah, so it it was the same, the same, you know, even in a combat zone, even when, you you know, you wake up on a day and people want to shoot you, um, (laughs) (laughs) just casually (laughs) you know you you got you got you got a job to do (laughs) Uh, so uh, eventually yeah you 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 just kind of dig in and start you know doing what you can and and yeah
0: that's i mean there's so much reality and truth to that. At the same time, I think of it as such a painful way of, of viewing life and and how you put your own feelings aside and, and the stress of it. And it kind of just bottles up. It kind of just sits there for a while. It's It's not the healthiest, but you know it's the way that you want to handle the situation because it, and that's how men have been in, in a lot of ways been told to handle their problems is just dive deeper into um, their work, their provision or something. They, they avoid some of those, I guess, heavier conversations because we are seen as, as providers or um, as people that, you know, we're, we're strong enough to get beyond it when really sometimes we're not and and I'm not sure if that was how you felt and I just find it so I guess disheartening that that is a way that we choose to see life is to delve further into jobs because I always say of myself you know my relationships are way more important than my job will ever be and and I don't know because I've never been, I've never been in a relationship I'll tell you that right now like I've I've not had to actually practice that but I believe that in the future, if my marriage was going through a problem, I would quit my job or or be like, you know, I would stand up to them and say, look, I'm not coming into work until I figure out my relationship. Like that, that holier than thou, I guess, kind of idea of, of how I would want to approach that. But I really have no idea. But I I I I hope that's how I act. And I hope that would be how lots of people were. were to react because the society we live in promotes that relationships are always more important than the job. I, I that's a bit of a tangent, but no, I, I don't no, know. No. It's, 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 I it's
1: a great tangent. And I, I, am so fascinated by this. i I've, I've, and i and I've, I, I have two little tidbits. One is, is yeah, there's this, uh, it's, it's a real thing called dissociation in, in, in post-traumatic stress disorder, where you, you kind of, break your feelings off and you stop feeling. And it's, it's kind of scary. I used to talk about it like a light switch. Um, but it's, it's, it's such a, such a real thing that happens when, and, uh, I I was in an ambush, uh, people uh, were lost and, you know, there, there's this, this feeling uh, that you want to feel care and concern uh, for the, the guy next to you, but at the same time, you you have to cut feelings off almost completely because there are still bad guys there and you need to do your job and and I find this part so fascinating because I, I feel like it's really dangerous to to um soldiers and I, I feel just personally I, I felt it myself um it, it's it's so scary I, I've in therapy I've gone back and talked about it and, and described it as sociopathic I, 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 it's, it's one of those things where when you when you can't feel emotion and can't feel uh, empathy for other people I, I, I feel like it feels disgusting like I want to go take a shower um, mm-hmm. and it, it's happened even to my own kids uh, you know uh, it, it's part of this like like light switch like the feelings turning on and off is sometimes I don't control when it happens and you know, I, I remember one day being in therapy and, and having this discussion that I, I saw my son fall down. He hurt himself, and I, I was, I was so uh, stressed with my own response that I just immediately shut off, like, like I flipped the feeling light switch off. Um, and and talking about it with the doctor, it, I mean, it, it just feels gross that my, my own son could could be hurt or you know severely. Uh, in, in stress. And I would not be able to like, like empathize with that. It, mm. it was, it was, it, it really uh, changes the way, uh, you, you, you respond to things. And I, I think it's, it's very dangerous for, for soldiers because it's part of the job. You, you, I mean, you, if, if you are in arms way, you can't do that. And I, I, I feel the same way about first responders, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, paramedics, have to secure the scene. You can't help anybody if you you put yourself in danger. So whether whether you're a a, a combat paramedic or whether you're a a you know a hospital paramedic and an EMT and in the ambulance on the street, when you show up to a scene, you need to secure the scene because you can't help people if you uh in fact become a casualty yourself. Um, so I, I think this is not exclusive to the military, but I I, I feel like. That that dissociation is is it can drag on and and it goes back to what you were saying about you know that the, that constant stress um, it, it's it's just so weird to to be in a place where you may have to keep that dissociation long term mm-hmm. and uh, like I said I, I used to tell my doctor that I was afraid I would turn the switch off and never be able to turn it back on. And mm-hmm. that was my biggest fear um, about this whole thing when I started acknowledging all, all the, the the things that happened. I, I was terribly afraid that I would spend the rest of my life not being able to feel again. And uh, it, it's it's really hard, um, you know, to 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 do that. And <clears throat> the 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 longer term part about it though, uh, about this feeling of of diving into your work to kind of distract you, you. You, you mentioned this, this, this role that, that, um, men play as, as being the provider or protector. And and that was my, my biggest problem with therapy to begin with. Um, uh, I, I was, I was in the military. I, I was, I was, you know, a staff sergeant. I, I, I was, uh, this, this tough, uh, you know, I fought bad guys, uh, um, um, I, I, that was kind of, I, I didn't have time to, to, um, to take care of myself. And then, I, I eventually acknowledged everything. I, I, I got into the VA. I started asking for help. And my, my first comments to all of my doctors were, "How long is this going to take? And when can I go back to work?" I stopped working. Um, I, I didn't go to school. I didn't work. I did this full time. Uh, it, it was a tremendous effort and I didn't believe them at first. I thought this was a joke. Like I'll, I'll just go to therapy, you know, like everybody else, like, like mm-hmm. once a week and, and work through it. And I, I, I was so looking past therapy into how do I get back to being that provider and protector that I, I kind of had blinders on. Like I, I knew it was a, a, a speed bump in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really acknowledge all the work that was going to happen in therapy. And and then, you know, they they gave me this whole uh, treatment program of of, uh, therapy sessions, group therapy sessions and and homework that I took home from the therapy sessions. And it it really turned into almost a full time job. I I think at one point it was it was something like 30 hours a week that I I, effort I put into taking care of myself. And it, it felt so awkward at first. Um, uh, d- doctors and, and nurses and all my providers at the VA said, "Hey, look, just um, I, I know this is hard for you, but you focus on taking care of yourself because you can't help others if you don't help yourself first. And uh, yeah, it was it was really eye opening, and uh, it's it's one of those hard things to do. But um, I I kind of eventually um, kind of. Did the logic in my head to kind of talk myself into it that I could stick with it by by saying that it was a full-time job that got me broken and uh it might take a full-time effort for a little bit to to recover from it.
0: Yeah. No, that's a that's a beautiful way of of summarizing that. And kind of discussing what you said about you know not feeling being your biggest fear. I feel like that's what a lot of um, men try to explain or or teach to people is that detachment aspect, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with detaching. You know, there's moments where obviously you as a soldier, as an as an armyman, had to respond uh, and react faster than you had to think, and in, and in like a lot of ways, and and you know, yes, there are other situations going on that take precedence over you know, feeling for a lost one. But the problem comes with then when you are able to think back to that later, it's it's you, you don't, you choose to ignore those problems. And, and you know, one thing I I have a problem with is this, this idea of stoicism is very much that aspect of, of you really detach yourself from emotions, but you like train it, it into you. And I find that really fascinating that that was one of your biggest fears is that you wouldn't be able to feel it again. So I'm curious is, do you feel like you could feel now is empathy back in your life or or is that still a process that you're undertaking
1: yeah it's it's weird it's um it, it's for the i mean for the most part I, I don't i feel like I have a little more control over uh when it comes and goes um, but i mean this is I, I this has been ten years of of kind of learning how to do this myself um i I started my my therapy originally about ten years ago, so uh, it's, it's taken me a long time to learn how to do that. Um, my, my therapy at the VA, the, my original, um, uh, course, I, I, I don't really feel like I had it in control when I left and that, that was almost two years long. I, I, I think, um, huh, I, I kind of, I, I was afraid that people would think that, you know, the, the, the emotional dysregulation portion of, of post-traumatic stress disorder gets kind of blown out of proportion a bit. Mm-hmm. This idea that you can't, you can't regulate those emotions you can't you don't know how to turn that switch on and off and when you do sometimes it's overwhelming um, it's like um, uh, less like a switch and more like a dam sometimes you open up the 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 levee to the dam and and it the 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 water is just overwhelming and and um, i I had to describe this to my kids uh, you know when they were kind of toddlers and uh, we, we went with, um, you know, cartoon analogies. I, I, I would explain it like the Hulk, like, like this light switch. Sometimes when you flip it on, it, it gets, it gets really li- like excited and, and not angry, like, like Hulk smash angry, but, um, uh, just overwhelming. And, um, the first time I, I had this conversation with my kids, I didn't know how to describe it. Uh, but I was lucky enough to, it was, it was around the holidays and, and I, I, one of my favorite cartoons is the Grinch truth all Christmas. And I don't know if you've, there's, there's a scene at the end of the movie when he, or at the end of the, the original cartoon, the, the Dr. Seuss, like uh, show we used to watch every mm-hmm. year um, on TV um, about 20 minutes in, you know, he, he steals all the Christmas presents and he's up on top of the mountain. And then, you know, he has this change of heart and he realizes maybe Christmas is a little bit more, but it, it's that spot right there. It, it, I always felt like, like my, my, my heart. Um, it was, it was the one thing in all of my doctor's notes that, uh, that, uh, and all my, my therapy and everything else was, it, it felt overwhelming when you turn that switch on. It was like your heart kind of grows big, like, like it hurts in my chest. And I've, I've heard so many people explain this physically in, in so many fascinating ways for, for me, I, I always felt like it hurt, um, like like physical pain, like like my heart was swelling up and pushing oh. on everything. Um, I heard another veteran describe it as the feeling you get in an elevator when it goes down too fast. Oh, uh, yes. And and that was the closest thing I've ever I've ever felt to to like the right description. I, I still don't think I get it right, but um, to to go back to you know this this my, my Grinch analogy. Uh, that's the way I explained it to my kids. Is that, you know that. When when his heart grows and he saves Christmas and his you know the little meter shows up and his heart grows three times and it breaks the little thing, that that's it. That's uh, I I call it the Grinch heart um, feeling because that that's what happens uh, with with the light switch and and um, it it can be overwhelming and it can be scary when you when you turn it off and you know know, your heart kind of shrivels up to like tiny tiny Grinch heart. But um, it it's it's. It takes a very very long time sometimes i can be stressed out and know that i have work to do and it's easy to turn some headphones on and turn some angry music up and and just try to you know um, work and not focus on feelings um i use music a lot and it's it's um it's very true that 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 music can kind of influence your your emotions and your your you know physical thought process or mental thought processes and stuff but um it, yeah i i feel like i sometimes use music to help me um manage that that switch on and off mm-hmm. now and, it, and that's one of the ways i I've, I've just learned to deal with it
0: yeah and 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 i want to talk about coping mechanisms soon but the last question i want to ask you about this whole therapy and is how like, do you still go to therapy or is that a part of your life that you don't really need anymore? Are you able to self-suffice? Like, I'm really curious now, I know you said you went on it, to it for 10 years, but do you still rely on it?
1: I, yes and no. Um, this was my, my biggest fear. And, and my last question when I ended my therapy at the VA, uh, the first time was that I, I didn't know I, I failed so bad at, at acknowledging it for myself the first time. And and it, I mean it, it led to a suicide attempt. I, I didn't know how to deal with it, how to acknowledge it, how to control it, and it was completely overwhelming. And when I was done with my therapy, um, I kind of look at it as you know I, I shut down my life. I I, I did my my my, my self care thing in a bubble. And as I left therapy and went off to you know uh, go back to school and and eventually join the workforce. Um, I was afraid that I would miss the symptoms and the signs again, and it it, uh, it was it was a, a, a big concern of mine. And I, I eventually, you know, went on um, uh, tried to go back to work, uh, finish a degree, and do all these other things. And and when I when I got back into real life, and you know, had to deal with schools and jobs and f- real family stuff, just like I did. You know, when when everything um, kind of spiraled out of control to begin with, I did eventually go back to therapy, and uh, that that um, was was probably another three or four years uh, of of therapy. It it started out as as they, they called it a um a booster session uh, at at, uh, at at the uh, military clinic um, here in New York, and um, it was originally only supposed to be about six months. Uh, you know, to kind of help me. Uh, regain uh, um, some some sense of control over over things before they got out of hand. And it ended up uh, going on for about uh, four years, almost four years.
0: Wow. And
1: yeah, and, yeah, and, and even then, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was ready to, to ditch it. But um, I, I, in the meantime, uh, you know, do... Plenty of uh, self-care.
0: Mm-hmm. What what does your self-care look like?
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I mentioned music. Music's a big thing, um, and running. Uh, I actually I, like, I, I'm like I'm fairly athletic person, uh, and uh, to, to be successful in the military, you're supposed to be. So uh, I I never had a problem with uh, you know getting out and running and things and and but I never. I never did it for mental health. It was always because you know, you know, it, it, I I like being in shape. I like being able to to uh, you know um, do things physically, or or I needed to do things physically in the army. And um, it wasn't uh, I, I when I went back to when I went to therapy to begin with. I realized that that part of part of the, these uh, therapy was getting out and, and learning how to do these things like, like running and having it be a, a stress reduction exercise. And, and I, I, adopted it. I started running marathons. Um, and yeah, it, I, I probably run 30, 30 miles a week, I guess now. Um, I'm, I'm on pace actually in 2020 to run over a thousand miles this year. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's been an adjustment, but, um, yeah, I, I I run a lot. There there's there's this thing called the runner's high, and I I firmly believe that on days I don't feel good, um, getting out there and and running a couple miles makes me um, able to get through the day. Um, I think if I skip the gym for a couple days or running for a couple days, I start to feel gross again, and not gross physically, but gross mentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just I've, i feel like there's a fog kind of uh, i guess is the best way to describe it um and and <clears throat> i i still take some sleeping medication over the counter um i think it's a just standard diphenhydramine but when i was in therapy there there was a huge cocktail of 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 so many different medications and and it it, it put on weight uh, i gained you know over 40 pounds i I'm normally, you know, like 180 pounds ish uh, in the military. Uh, I ballooned up to almost 230, um, and uh, getting back to running was kind of how I I started weaning myself off the medication, mm. and that, that's that's kind of how it evolved, you know, from um, from physical to mental uh, um, exercise. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the running, the music, and the kind of forcing myself to stick with uh, this over-the-counter sleep medication uh, is basically the, the framework of my self-care. Uh, I, I do a few other things. Um, so there's some, some good stuff about sleep hygiene. You know, um, trying, to, trying to keep to a good schedule. Don't, don't uh, vary your, your pattern too much when it comes to sleep. Making sure you're sleeping in a place that's dark. Uh, with with less distractions if you wake up in the middle of the night i write a lot mm. um, this was something that actually came out when uh came out of my um uh, my, my my going back to school and and i realized that i i got a benefit out of writing and uh, that, that that was something that helped me when i sleep because when i when i wake up with these nightmares or wake up with these feelings that I, i'm wide awake and my heart is still pounding and, uh, part of this sleep hygiene learning is, uh, learning to, to acknowledge that you're just going to lay there and get frustrated that you can't go back to sleep. So the, the, the recommendation with, uh, you know, my, my, my treatment team was that I get up and do something for 15 or 20 minutes and then go back to bed. And I ended up start, I, I, I wrote. I, I would write little bits and pieces. I, I would write a letter to my kids. Uh, it, I mean, it started out really small, and and I'm actually I, – I managed to string 60,000 words together in a book. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah that, that it, it kind of evolved from there, and, and this idea that, that writing is actually very therapeutic, too. Uh, there are a lot of tremendous groups that do a lot of great things supporting – Writing is a therapeutic outlet or journaling or art therapy. And, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that those are, are good things uh, and, and helpful for anyone, whether you're a veteran or not, if you need a distraction, sometimes the, the words come out that you wouldn't expect on, on a piece of paper or, uh, you know, through a, a picture
0: yeah funny enough, I actually just recorded an episode specifically about journaling with a with uh, someone yesterday, so uh, we were talking basically about all of that and how it can be therapeutic, how it gives you that reference point in life. so I think that's a really common thing that I see about with a lot of people that especially go through therapy is writing and journaling um, but also just like successful people in life. a lot of them journal their lives their biggest goals, so that's fascinating. Um, I also wanted to talk about how it manifests itself in everyday life for you. I know you live in New York City. I'm not sure what some of those things might be there, but I, I mean, it's noisy, it's loud, and it's kind of chaotic. Um, what are some of the things that you deal with every day that either kind of reminds you that maybe are there any things that you stay away from, any things that you really don't feel comfortable around? Like, How does it manifest itself on the day to day?
1: Yes. Yeah, so New York city is very busy. Uh, there, there's a few million people around all the time and I, I find it very weird. I've had, I've had this discussion with a couple of veteran friends. Uh, I, I, I find that, um, it's, it's almost poetic that there's so many people around, but you, you can feel so alone in this sea of people because everybody's so busy. It's bustling with everybody uh, having something else on their mind. Uh, everyone, no one in the subway really has conversations. Everybody has their headphones on. Um, I, I just, I find it so uh, um, intriguing as, as an idea that, you know, there's all these people physically around, but, but you, you could feel alone. Um, but I, I do struggle with the crowds. I, I, I wear headphones almost everywhere. In fact, I, my personal choice for headphones now is, is a, a wireless headset that, that has a wire between them. I don't like the air pod, uh, like the separate earbuds, mm-hmm. uh, because e- even, even when I'm not, um, talking or listening to it, I, I, I want it around. So I have a pair of noise-canceling headphones that, that are tethered together, each 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 uh each earpiece, and mm-hmm. I kind of wear them like a, like a shoulder strap all the time. And I, I I feel like everybody thinks that I'm just you know just screwing around or whatever, but but it it's it's my way of, of dealing with the noise in the crowd because it, it is it's it's like a like constant buzz in the background, and and I, I just need to mute it sometimes. It is very distracting. Um, I call it a, a almost like a sensory overload. Like there's so much information, you you're, you're my little. I feel like my, my brain is a little pea brain, and it can't take all of it in all the time. So sometimes I just need to muffle it, and um, but that's one of the great things about going out to run for a little bit too, because I can just crank up, you know, my, my, some music in these headphones, and it, I feel like nobody can bother me. It's just me with alone with my thoughts. Uh, so. That that's something I do I I really worked hard at getting out of the habit of of um, going out into crowds and things um, uh, going to the Thanksgiving Day parade uh, going to uh, new year's eve here in in manhattan those those are things that are like a bucket list for for a lot of americans to be able to go and do those things and i i hated it i i i couldn't deal with the crowd so a lot of exposure therapy or prolonged exposure therapy deals with you know asking you to challenge yourself and constantly expose yourself to these these things that stress you out and, and kind of live with them until they don't feel stressful so I've, I've when, I, when I got here to New York, I kind of gradually introduced myself to this idea that I, I wanted to go see, you know, the, the, the Halloween parade downtown in the village. Um, uh, but, it, but it's all about moderation for me. Um, I don't really go out too often. Uh, I, I kind of stay away from the crowds. Um, what else do I do? There is um, obviously still trying to run a lot, um, avoiding the subway. I will walk. I would much rather walk through town than than be kind of pinned into a subway station and, and especially a subway car. Um, so if if I can take a short express train and and walk an extra you know ten blocks, I'm super fine with that. I'm beyond mm-hmm. okay with that. It's it's very cool. Um, and, Even in the winter. Oh yeah yeah. Um, okay. I I have no problem. I'm, I've, I've run long, I said it earlier, you know, like a thousand miles this year, I have no problem walking. Uh, I have on occasion walked from my, you know, basically Central Park down to Battery Park, which is half the island. Um, just because I, I feel like I want to walk that day. Um, yeah. I put a lot of extra time into it. When I, when I used to go to school here, I, I would take the express trains um, and just take the extra long walk. Uh, because I, I, I needed that time to process stuff. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's something that, that people didn't understand. Why, why would you, why would you get off at that subway station and walk 20 blocks? Um, and, and there's, there's, there's something to being out in the crowds that, that I, that I need, I need to, um, Kind of force myself to to have those experiences because if i if i coop myself up and avoid people and and you know lock myself down in my apartment uh you know it it, it leads to a relapse of those problems and <clears throat> very amusing um when, when i run I, I would go take pictures I, w- I would you know share with friends on facebook or wherever you know i, I ran eight miles today trying to motivate everybody else or say hey you know, here's, here's what I did, uh, join me. And my veteran friends would ask me who takes all these pictures because they know that I, I, I do this all by myself. Um, mm-hmm. running is like my time. And it, it, it's so funny because it, it's, it's part of the, the thing I did to force myself to talk to all these people. I, I mentioned this, this fascination with, uh, 8 million people being around, but still feeling so alone and so disconnected. I, I, I would, walk up to random strangers, tourists that look like tourists and say, Hey, would you take a picture? And, and then I would be forced to kind of have a conversation with them and it it makes people feel like people again, instead of just, you know, a crowd. Mm. Uh, It it was something I did in the army. Um, You know, I I had a very unique job where I was out with civilians all the time. I I learned foreign languages and, and uh, you know, interacted with crowds a lot and I, 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 I miss it. I, I realized the value of it, so ironically, I, I've kind of gone back to it a little bit. In in, I skip it now because I don't want people touching my phone. I don't want you know to, to spread diseases, and and I, I want people to stay safe. But but very much a part of the habit of running was was forcing myself after a run to go talk to someone and say, Hey, would you mind taking a picture? It's a really nice day. What are you guys doing? But but yeah, it, it you know forcing me to go and walk up to somebody who looks like they're a tourist in Central Park and say, hey, hey, take, take, take this picture for me. Where are you guys going? Oh, maybe you should try here. Uh, I, I heard this is a good day today to go there. Uh, it, it forced me to, to connect to people. And, mm. and it, 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 it's um, um, very, very helpful in, in dealing with, with uh, anxiety when it comes to other people and, and being close or uh, personal space and all the other anxiety issues that come around crowds.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Is that, um, you know, a lot of times people think that mental health. What happens is that you avoid the thing that gives you stress and anxiety in the first place. When basically everything I've read and and every thing that seems to be most effective is is no, you just lightly introduce yourself, reacclimatize yourself to those things, because you'll never be able to avoid throughout your life. Life throws random things at you. Things happen in public that will un. un necessary or unintentionally um trigger you, like that's not the intent. They just kind of happen. So like that 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 whole reacclimatizing yourself um exposure therapy, I think some would call it cognitive behavioral therapy or, or I think that's another yeah. term for that it. Is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean it's just fascinating how the science is behind really a lot of things that say reacclimatize, expose yourself kind of we live in a society that overprotects protects in a lot of ways people from those ang- anxiety because we think it, it will help, but really long-term that's, that's not the solution.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that's the, I spent two years in behavioral cognitive uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, basically learning to, to identify, you know, how I function and how I, I didn't function when I uh, was avoiding everything. And, uh, you know, this, the, the idea that a prolonged exposure therapy in that uh, CBT set was basically to kind of um, help me face those fears and and challenge myself to uh, get back in the, the driver's seat, so to speak. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very important. I feel very lucky because um, most of my time in the Army, I, I worked in a, in a branch of the Army uh, called Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations. So we spend a lot of time paying attention to people and, you know, how, how they say things, how they do things and and how we interact as, as, as a society. And uh, uh, I think that that gave me some, some extra insight into my own treatment. And, and I, I really like to, to talk about it when I can, when, when veterans are open to it and anybody, really not, not just veterans, because I realized, uh, you know, you, you could have been in an earthquake, a car accident, a, a rape any, anything um, you, you know that's stressful. But um, I feel like I was fortunate enough to have that background that, that kind of helped me understand that I was doing the right thing by participating in this therapy. A lot of, a lot of people drop out mm. because it gets a, a little challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, Tom, I I really want to thank you for for being here. Um, I want to I'll use this next minute or so to to get you to promote yourself where people can find you, find the work that you're doing because I know that you do some great work. Um, so so the next minute or two is yours to to promote yourself. I know you said you were writing a book. Um, feel free to plug anything.
1: Oh my gosh, I am writing a book and it's <sighs> It's well, sixty thousand words strung together. Nobody's yelled at me for it yet. Um, but uh, I also started a nonprofit called the Lift and Shift Foundation uh, to kind of help all their veterans along with the journey. Um, I, I do a lot of advocating for for veterans and mental health and uh, everything in general when I can. Uh, I have my hands in a, a lot of things, just like Ben Franklin. So it's 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 honestly hard for me to promote, uh, too much of it. Uh, I, I, I still do some, some medical research for a a big fancy hospital here. And, uh, um, you know, talk, talk to, talk to kids, but, um, I, I went on to, you know, a degree in engineering myself and I realized that that there's a lot of challenges that veterans don't, um, really acknowledge there either. So my foundation has a mission of, of advocating for, veterans in science technology through uh, programs that educate and build confidence. Uh, that's the, the actual mission statement. And uh, that's that, where I spend a lot of my time uh, helping veterans see that uh, they can do everything I can do. I and mean, I'm not really that special. I just didn't give up.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I just had a guest on um, who talked about how, you know, you're not that special, um, but everyone, you know, a lot of men don't handle their mental health issues um you're not the first man to feel loneliness anxiety depression fear but you might be the first one to address it and build on it in your life and i see that that's what you're doing tom um you're one of the the people that is kind of inspiring a lot of of veterans to open up about their lives about their mental illness or mental health and self-care after their army and i i really respect and and value that and uh, i hope you see the positivity of the work that you're doing yeah 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 so tom thank you so much for joining me today uh everyone i'll link his website in the description below where you can find him some of his socials uh and tom yeah just thank you so much for opening up about your story your journey through ptsd and therapy i think it's really going to offer a lot of value to uh men out there and uh everyone that listens to the show Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. At the end, I mentioned an episode that I recently recorded about mental health. Uh, that is episode 52. If you're interested in hearing more, it's all about having conversations with men about mental health. If you would like to find out more about today's guest, Tom, you can check out his website, weliftandshift.org, or follow on socials, which I've linked in the description box below. If you enjoyed the episode, it would mean the world to me if you took that time to press the follow button, subscribe button, or left a review. And if you would like to discuss today's topic, again, please feel free to message me on Instagram at The Imperfect Pod, connect with me on LinkedIn at Luke West, or shoot me an email at Luke at The or join the Facebook group. There's so many ways to get in contact with me. I'll have linked them all in the description box below. And I look forward to seeing you all on Friday for the next episode of Just The Tip.